Okay. Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, it's, hope you had a wonderful Christmas uh, time with family and friends, and uh, we weren't we didn't meet last time, uh, obviously because of the Christmas uh, celebration, and uh, we had our just our normal worship service. But I trust that you've uh, been able to take a little bit of time uh, with family and uh, and enjoy the time as we worship our Savior and and glorify Him. Um, we're going to work on, uh, we're going to talk about Deuteronomy this morning, so we'll get started with a word of prayer and then let's get going on that. Our Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us, and you have supplied for us so richly in our salvation and in our, even in our sanctification. You continue to supply what we need and the power and the ability to, to be what you've called us to be, and we thank you for your grace, which is enabling, and it is the power that we depend upon. And as we think about, and as we study this morning, the book of Deuteronomy, we will see that this was something that you have promised from long ago, that a new covenant would come, and it would, uh, it will, and then did, when it finally did come, it will enable your people to be what you've called us to be. And we thank you for that, and we enjoy those benefits that you have given. So we praise you for that, and we pray that you would give us just hearts that will uh, receive your truth and understand it so that we may live it before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we're doing a little bit out of order we should have been doing Deuteronomy next week, but I really wanted to do Deuteronomy. I'm not going to be able to be here for next week's, which I'll have a uh, another I'll have a sub step in for me next week. Um, but we'll be covering Deuteronomy this week because I just can't not do Deuteronomy. I have to. I'm like, okay, I've got to do this one. So I'm really excited to do this one with you guys and um, want to get this one going so that we can uh, see why this one is so important. So Deuteronomy, when we look at the title of Deuteronomy, and we're dealing with the Hebrew title, it's a very nondescript, kind of generic title, or so it seems. Uh, the Hebrew is Ele Hadibarim, and it means, these are the words, which seems so generic, and it's like, that doesn't mean a whole lot, and that doesn't seem like that's that important, but... As, it's, as we've seen, the first words of each of these books in the Pentateuch so far actually make a difference and actually act as a theme in that book. And that's exactly what's going on here as well. The words that are being described here are literally the, the words from God, and words can be substituted for the like a synonym in Hebrew for the matters or the events or the things that took place, but words is kind of the most uh, simplistic definition of it, I would say. So that's, that's what the Hebrew title is. These are the words. Now the Greek title is the one that we're more familiar with, which is Deuteronomion, okay? Deuteronomion, which is the word that we get Deuteronomy from, okay? And Deuteron- this Deuteronomy word means second law. That's what it literally means in Greek. And that's not quite a great title, even though we're accustomed to seeing it. And on the surface, it might seem like it's a great title. But it's not as probably as accurate as what we have here with these are the words, the, the Hebrew one here. And the reason why that's the case is because um, it's not really a second law. It's not a second one. It's really more of an explanation or an exposition of that first law. It's not a second law. It's not like God gave them um, something that's com- totally and completely separate. And it was given to the second generation of Israel uh, as they were preparing to enter the land. And you must understand that, yes, there are differences between Deuteronomy and Exodus and even Leviticus. Not that there's things that are being contradicted, but there are a lot of things that are being added. There are a lot of changes that are, that are uh, being described. 
But that's important because this is really being spoken to, to a generation of people that are going to inhabit the land. They're going to dwell in the land. And so it's speaking to them as though, okay, this is what you're going to do when you're in the land, not just when you're wandering in the wilderness. And so there's a little bit more specificity that's supplied that the first generation didn't really need to know, at least from the outset. Uh, now, they, arguably, if they had actually not rebelled, then the Lord would have communicated more of that specificity for sure. But the Lord knew what he was doing because he knew that was going to happen. And so more of that specificity would come later on as they drew nearer to the promised land and that second generation came on the scene. And this is important, too, to remember, and most of you probably know this, but Deuteronomy is actually a sermon. It's not just an account of things. It's actually a spoken um, sermon of sorts that was actually proclaimed to Israel, and it is something that Literally, Moses is telling them right before he dies and right before they enter the promised land. So he's charging them with these words. And uh, it would be actually a really good experiment. I think even Steve has mentioned this to actually read through or preach just the book of Deuteronomy. Just read it just in full in a service. It would probably take longer than an hour, I'm sure. But that would be quite a, a, a quite, quite an enjoyable thing to do because you're actually hearing it as a sermon as it was originally given. Okay, So that's how we would understand the title and um, I think that Hebrew title is a little bit more accurate. Now let's talk about authorship. Uh, by now you should know what you to expect with who the author is. It's been the same the whole time. So we have Moses, right? He's the author. Okay, I'm not going to rehash that. You got the audience. That should also be the same as well. We have second generation Israel that is receiving this book, receiving this proclamation that Moses codifies and then speaks to the people of Israel, just like he did with Genesis through Numbers. Now, in terms of the win, let's talk about the win of the book. <laughs> Same date, right? 1406 BC. We're talking about 40 years after the exodus from Egypt. And remember, of course, that 1446 date is an important date, as we've talked about already. Now, what's interesting here is that everything in Deuteronomy takes place in a 30-day period. Okay, in a 30-day period. Uh, and... It begins on, it says in Deuteronomy 1.3, it begins on the first day of the 11th month. And then we would assume, we would assume that Moses actually spoke this sermon in one day to Israel. So we would assume that, right? And then it says at the end of the book in chapter 34 that Israel mourned for him after he died. So we would also assume that he spoke the sermon, then he went up on the mountain, God showed him all the land, all the promised land that he would give to the sons of Israel, and then he died, presumably, that day. So, it says after that, that Israel mourned for him for 30 days. So hence, when you put that all together... We're talking about a 30-day span of time that this book spans. And really, it's like the first day is like the entire book, and then the last few verses is the 30 days. That's basically what we're dealing with. Okay? So that's the win of, of the book here. Then we have the where. The where. This is the fifth part of Torah. Okay? This is the fifth part. Uh, n- uh, no surprise there. And this is also a book that was written and comprised and even proclaimed in the plains of Moab, right on the other side of the Jordan River. And now, this is really important, this is the moment. Now they're really poised to take the promised land. And I wanted to show you a photo. This is not quite where they would have been, but it is up the Jordan River, a little bit north of where they would have been. But basically, I finally found a photo on the other side. So uh, a while ago, I showed you a photo from Israel's side looking at where they would have been sitting as they were waiting. Now this is kind of looking from their vantage point, roughly 
kind of similar to what they would have seen. Not quite the exact location. Uh, that was hard to find. But this is a little bit north on the Jordan River, looking westward as they're looking at the promised land. The Jordan River is actually in there, in the valley. It's just, it's not a big river. It's a pretty small river. It, it doesn't take much to cross it. Uh, even so, the river probably was large enough, at least during that era of time, for it to be a pretty miraculous event for them to cross through on, on dry land. But even so, you can't quite see the Jordan River in this photo here. So that's a, that's an interesting viewpoint that you get to see and kind of get a little bit of a perspective. This photo actually was taken uh, in the 1960s. That's why it took a, me a while to find a photo that actually was showing this perspective. I'm guessing that it's gotten a little bit more hostile since then, so it's hard to get over on that side and then take a picture from the other angle. I don't know. I'm just kind of surmising that's the case. Uh, but this is the location, okay? This is actually the location of... Now, again, this is looking eastward now. So we're not looking at, from their vantage point, what they're seeing, but we're looking at them. This is where they would have been over here. And this right here is part of Jericho back in the 1960s, okay? This is Jericho-ish here. This is actually a refugee camp, I believe, uh, in Jericho. So this is the location. This is a real place. This really happened. This is where the sons of Israel actually stayed and remained until they were ready to cross the Jordan River. All right, now this is where it gets great. This is where it gets fun, okay? Because Deuteronomy, as we've talked about, we've used these diagnostic questions to understand each book and where each book kind of falls in the whole um, picture of God's kingdom plan for Israel. Uh, And as you remember, we have Genesis is the who, okay? And Exodus is the what? Okay, good. And then Leviticus is the how. Okay, the how, which is holiness, right? They're supposed to be holy before God. That's the how of God's kingdom plan. Numbers is the when. Good. And then now, Deuteronomy, not to be confused with the fact that this is always why, because this is the, the why of the book itself, but Deuteronomy is actually also the why. Okay? This is the why of God's kingdom plan. This is the reason for the fact that they are going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, we're not done with the diagnostic questions. We have one more, and that would be Joshua, the next book, which is going to give us pretty clearly the where, right? The where. Where, where are they going to reside? Uh, and this is what's so uh, applicable to us, and I think we find this Uh, something that we can resonate with. Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests so that they may love the Lord their God with all their heart, to do that supremely, to serve Him faithfully all their days. And this is to be, this is important because sometimes this can be overlooked. This is to be a model to the nations to draw everyone else to the one true God. This is not just supposed to be Israel for Israel's sake. As though, well, I'm choosing Israel and that's it. This is what the plan is. No, this is actually to be a model to the nations and it's actually mentioned in Deuteronomy. In fact, you know some of these key passages really well. They might be ones that you've committed to memory. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God is one, right? Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God, or Yahweh your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. That is capturing the heartbeat of Deuteronomy. If, you're, if you want to come away with one thing about Deuteronomy, it's that. It's that Israel may love Yahweh their God with all their heart. This is the why of God's kingdom. This is why God has brought His people to Himself. Because He wants them to be His servants, to love Him and to serve Him and to fear Him all their days. And that resonates with us. Because that's how we come to know the Lord too. This is what we desire. This is what we want. We want to be this before the Lord. Another key verse in this is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Why don't you turn your Bibles over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is really, really fun to see because it's just, it puts everything together all in one 
basically one sentence. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. But now, O Israel, what has Yahweh your God, what is He asking from you? But to fear, you hear that? There's that word fear. To fear Yahweh your God, to walk in His ways, and to love Him, and to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to guard or to keep uh, the commandments of Yahweh and his ordinances which I myself am commanding you today for your good. This is important because this verse really acts essentially as a hub for all of the key themes in the book. It's incredible. In fact, you actually see this, and we'll see this in a second when we get to the, the, the how or the terminology of the book, but uh, this really acts as a hub and brings it all together. So if you were to put this all together into one purpose statement, this is how I would phrase it. Deuteronomy is really Moses' last will and testament, which is proclaimed as a sermon. Right? It's brought to them in a sermon format. As a, and that, the way I phrase it here, as a sermonic covenant treaty, to the second generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, and it's exhorting them to do this, to love their God and to stay faithful to Him all their days so that they may fulfill their mission as a kingdom of priests to the nations. Okay, That hopefully brings pretty much all of it together and essentializes it into one statement. Okay, Deuteronomy is Moses' last will and testament. It's proclaimed as a sermon, and it's to the second generation of Israel, and they are to love the Lord their God, to, be, to fear Him, to serve Him, be faithful to Him all their days so that they may fulfill this mission of being a kingdom of priests. Okay, So that's the purpose statement I would put for Deuteronomy. Okay, that's the why. Now, finally, for the how of the book, which is the terminology. And I'm going through this pretty quick because there's a couple really cool things we're going to cover as a kind of a special note here in Deuteronomy today. There is this word speaking, okay, from which we get the, the title of the book, right? These are the words. These are the, the things that were spoken. And, I mean, I just listed just a small little bit. I only got to chapter 5, but I was literally, I'm just literally like listing every single one that I could find. And I got to chapter 5, and I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to run out of slide space, okay? So this, this occurs a lot. Words, speaking, that kind of a thing. It's a very important phrase because that's a, literally the nature of this book. It is literally something that is being spoken, and it is words that they are to hang their entire life upon. Uh, this theme of listening and obeying and hearing, that they are to hear these things and obey them, occurs quite frequently. And I made it up to chapter 5 again, or chapter 6, and then I made it up to the Shema, which is really important because that's... That, means to hear, right? Hear, O Israel, right? Uh, and then I had to put a little ellipsis, and then I also put chapter 10, because we see that theme in chapter 10. That's a really important theme, and that's that, that hub verse I was just talking about there. Okay, so that's important. The, the theme to love, right? We just saw that in both of our passages in chapter 6 and in chapter 10. It occurs there, and, and you can see how I'm especially highlighting the chapter 6 parts and the chapter 10 parts that we read, because you can see how those act as kind of like a locus of these, um, a locus center of these themes. Uh, the theme to fear. Um, sometimes you'll see a term to, like terror or dread. That, that could also go in, in line with this for fear. Uh, but to fear Yahweh your God. Again, chapter 10 is highlighted there. And then we have service. Or work, uh, you could see it in the form of like slave or servant, uh, and you see several passages there. And again, chapter ten is bolded to bring out the fact that it's the hub and it brings it all together. To guard or to watch or to keep, you'll see that a ton of times. And again, it falls in chapter ten, verse thirteen. There, uh, the heart. The heart is such an important theme in Deuteronomy. In fact. This is the first time really in the Bible that we finally see an exposition on the human heart. That's really important. This is the first time that we really see a full exposition on the human heart. And that is critical because that's exactly what obviously the Lord intended. Because what we're dealing with here is you, this is essentializing who you need to be from the inside out. That's what Deuteronomy is. This is who you need to be 
from the inside all the way to the outside. And what it's going to lead us to is into Deuteronomy 30 when he finally says, you can't be that from the inside out. You can fake it externally to a certain point, but you can't be that truly from the inside out, from your heart. And so that's where he's going to predict that you're going to need a new covenant. You, this old covenant, well, it wasn't old then, but this covenant, which will eventually become old, will not serve you in helping you be this from the inside out. You're going to need a new heart, and you're going to need that under a new covenant. Okay, So there's just little signs, not a full explanation of how that covenant is going to come to come about, but it is something that he lets them know this is going to come in the future. Which also makes you realize that the new covenant in the new heart of the new covenant is not something that Old Testament believers necessarily had. More on that someday when we get into that more. Okay, But I have talked about that uh, quite a bit, especially at the Grace Theological Academy we did this, um, this summer when we talk about the book of Romans, because Romans really exposits this in detail on how the Old Testament saint does not really have the, the heart of the new covenant. And so they, need, they, they, even so, even as believers, need the heart of the new covenant. And then you have these terms that are several terms. Commandments, ordinances, laws, teachings, precepts, and judgments. You see those terms occur quite frequently in the book. And you'll sometimes see them like in a staccato format. Back to back to back to back to back. You know, please keep the commandments and the ordinances, the laws, and the teachings, and the precepts, and the judgments. Right? And it uses all those terms. There's another part of Scripture that does this too. I don't know if you've noticed this. There's another part of Scripture that does exactly what Deuteronomy is doing, and it uses all of these terms. And it's Psalm 119. Are you familiar with that? Right? It's like using the Word of God, and it's using like every different synonym it can use to describe it. Um, I love your law, you know, and I will obey your precepts. And every verse is is using those terms. So what it, so what is, should that help you to understand? Psalm one nineteen is really an outpouring of the heart of Deuteronomy. That's what Psalm one nineteen is. It's really trying to essentialize that believer's heart resting in. The, the law that's written in Deuteronomy and wanting to fulfill, fulfill that as much as he can from his heart. Okay? There's also this really important term, turning away. Turning away. Which can also be translated as repentance. It's that Hebrew word shuv, which you might have heard in a sermon before, the word shuv. It can mean to just to turn away like Someone walks up to you and then they just turn away, right? Like that's what it could literally mean. Or it could mean something more conceptual, like I turned away from my sin, which is the idea of repentance. That's a really important theme because we see that especially occur, as I bolded there, in chapter 30. Because not only does he say, when you repent, when you turn away from your sin, then he also says, I will bring you back. In other words, I will make you turn. He uses the same word, and I will turn you away back to myself, turn you away from where you were going, turn you away from even in exile, and I will bring you back to myself. So it's a beautiful play on words that he uses there. Okay? And I had to put this one in here. This is um, something that we don't really see often. And that is, is that there is a unique interchange of singular use and plural use in this book. There is an interchange of singular use and plural use. That's very hard to, to find when you're just looking at an English translation. Unless you have the southern translation of the Bible and it says all y'all. Okay? But I don't think that one exists. So, singular use and plural use. Very important in the Bible because it's something we just easily overlook. It's something that Romans does a lot too. It, it, Romans does it in a very rhetorical way. This book here in particular, we must understand, and this is how I would, I would describe it here to you. The singular you is, it's just counterintuitive. This is counterintuitive, but the singular you is arguably corporate. You would be like, no, wait, the singular you is talking to an individual, right? It's talking to an individual, so you must be talking about to, like each and every individual. But that's not quite how the singular you works. Because a lot of times in the Bible, the singular you is used in a more corporate representative sense. Okay, 
And you can see that actually in Deuteronomy 17, 14. We don't need to go there. But it actually demonstrates there pretty clearly <laughs> because basically what he says is when you say, and this uses a singular you, you would kind of almost expect him to use a plural you. He uses a singular you. When you say, I will, uh, I will go, and I don't remember exactly what it says, but I will go into the land and I will defeat my enemies or something like that, right? And you can see how he's using a singular you, but he's talking to all Israel. And then he jumps into their own vantage point and begins to talk with words from their perspective. And he's talking corporately for everyone. He says, I will defeat my enemies. I will, I will go into the land or something like that. And in any case, he's using this in a corporate sense. And that's important. So when you see the singular you, if you can use a, an interlinear or um, some kind of Bible software that helps you to distinguish between them, when you see the singular you, it's probably more corporate. Although the individual plays a role. It's not that the individual doesn't, but it's more thinking about it corporately. And in that case, then the plural, if it's using a plural, it's more individual. Uh, it's more distributive. It's kind of saying each and every person of you, every single one of you, kind of looking at it in that perspective. Okay. All right, so I just wanted to make sure that was clear uh, because that's easily uh, missed when we come to Deuteronomy. Okay? Now, just really quick before I transition into some other cool and interesting topics, any questions on what we've covered so far with that? Is that good? Cool. All right, good. All right, let's go ahead and then and talk about the literary structure here, and this is going to branch us into some interesting things. The literary structure of Deuteronomy is really based around what's called uh, well, ancient Near East, first of all, let me just define that. The ancient Near East is really basically the ancient Near East, okay? So, we're basically talking about the area of Israel, but back in old times, okay? That's kind of what we're talking about, the biblical times. So, the ancient Near East is talking about that whole geography and all the cultures that were surrounding Israel at that time, and um, that, that, that um, kind of that situation. And the Book of Deuteronomy is framed around an ancient Near East Eastern suzerain vassal treaty contract, okay? Which is just a bunch of fancy terminology to say that there were these contracts that kings would make with groups of people, especially people that they've conquered. So a king would come in, they would conquer a group of people, and then whoever would survive, they would be subjected to the rule of that king, and the king would draft out a contract and say, you have to obey me in this way, and you have to do these things, and if you do these things, you won't be punished, and I'll actually be good to you, and I'll actually be this one, actually, not just good to you, I'll be the best uh, leader that you've ever had, and he'll kind of, you know, give himself a lot of glory in that, and that's that was a, a feature that we see in a lot of ancient Near Eastern treaties that were made between a people and a king. Okay, And Hittite kings would actually do this, and we have evidence of that. And they would have a certain outline and a, a kind of a very similar um, format that they would follow. And it would start with like a little introduction, here's who I am and here's who you are, that kind of a thing. And then here's kind of a historical prologue. I came in and I wiped you guys out and, um, you know, and I beat you guys and I'm better than you and that kind of thing. And then here are stipulations. Now here's what you need to do and I'm going to be good to you if you do this and I'm going to be bad to you if you do bad and, and that kind of a thing. Um, and then there are these uh, witnesses that then he calls upon and he says now we're entering into a covenant and I'm basically inviting these witnesses into our contract uh, and usually those witnesses were the gods of those people or the gods of the king the gods of the people were probably different than the gods of the king and so they, he would basically say, I'm calling your God as a witness, and I'm calling my God as a witness, and we're going to enter into a contract together. And then he finally gives like a series of curses and blessings and saying, like, you are cursed if you do this, and you are blessed if you do this, and that kind of a thing. Okay? So Deuteronomy actually follows a very similar format to this. It's really interesting, because you basically have a historical precedent that's set at the beginning of the book, and then you there is a little bit of a, a, an interesting discussion here of the law's purpose and love. 
love, but there are some stipulations that are mentioned in there quite a bit. And so you could almost say like this would be like the stipulation section along with this part here. A lot of stipulations here between these two these two parts where you have the law's purpose and the Ten Commandments. Um, ten, the ten, I should say Ten Commandments. I don't, it says Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments in action. You also have a series of blessings and curses toward the end of the book. And then there's a couple things that are a little bit out of place that are not quite part of the ancient Near Eastern treaties, such as this, what I call Yahweh's unfathomable plan, which is really a very interesting section. I love this section here. And then you have covenant witnesses. Now that's part of those old treaties. But then you also have God's plan for Israel beyond Moses, which is not part of these treaties. So that's another interesting one as well. Uh, which we will talk about right now, actually, because uh, this is interesting. For that last section, God's plan for Israel beyond Moses. Most people, most even conservative scholars, most conservative scholars, struggle to believe that Moses wrote Deuteronomy 34. Now, they would argue he wrote the rest of it, just as Jesus talks about. Uh, Moses and the law, but they struggle to believe he wrote Deuteronomy 34. And it should be obvious why they struggle to believe that, because he dies in Deuteronomy 34, and it describes his death. And then it describes events that happen after his death. So it's like, how he could he have done that? Right? That's impossible. And I would like to argue that Moses actually wrote Deuteronomy 34. And there's some reason why this is important. It's not just because, well, he could, because God could make him do that. That's true, and I think we need to be open to believing that, because God can have someone prophesy of things in the future after they die. But what's really important to note is that Moses fits in a category with a couple other guys in Scripture that do the the exact same thing. One of them is Elijah. Elijah knows what's going to happen before he quote-unquote dies. He doesn't really die, right? He like gets in a chariot, a flaming chariot, and is taken to heaven. And he's literally understanding that that's going to be happening as he and Elisha are going across the Jordan River. Um, so he, he does that. And then you also have Jesus, who predicts his own death. Yes? Many times, actually. And what's interesting about all three of these guys is that, one, they all are mountain men. And I mean that in the sense, not that they lived in the mountains, but they all got up on really important mountains at really critical points in their life. Moses is literally on a mountain when he dies. That's really important. And it reflects certain elements of these other guys' mountains as well. But then you have uh, Elijah going to Mount Horeb, which is the same thing as Mount Sinai. So he goes to Mount Sinai. uh, And just like Moses was on Mount Sinai, yes? And you then have Jesus getting up on a mountain, and who's with him? Moses and Elijah. And then right at that moment, right after that, Jesus then begins to tell his disciples what? I am going to what? Die. Right? My argument here is that these men all predicted their own death. And that's exactly what's going on in Deuteronomy 34. Okay? So I think that that is an intentional connection. I don't think that that's just a random thing. I believe that Moses is actually writing Deuteronomy 34. He closes the canon. And Joshua writes Joshua. That's fine. But Moses actually concludes by writing the book. And then he literally goes and fulfills it. He becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of himself. All right. Now... In terms of the covenant, just kind of going back here really quick to this suzerain vassal treaty contract covenant, that kind of thing. Yes, it does follow this format. This is a legitimate outline. I believe that this is a good outline for the book. But just be uh, aware of the fact that this is more than just a treaty or a covenant. It's not even technically a covenant because the covenant was already made with Israel back in Exodus, right? That was already made. So technically this is more of a rehashing. It's more of a covenant renewal. So just keep that in mind. 
And in the midst of this covenant, like we talked about, there are some things like this one right here, Yahweh's unfathomable plan, that break the, uh, the mold of um, the, the covenant outline, so to speak. It does things that you don't typically see in other covenants. So uh, that's true. But there's also uh, parts of this book where Moses appeals to the people. He starts talking to the heart of the people. And that's not quite how those old covenants would work. And so, uh, and I love this because Steve put this in the notes here, but really at this point, Moses is preaching. He's preaching to the people, right? And that's really important because he really wants their obedience. He's really calling them from his own heart so that their heart would be united with the Lord with, with all their heart and with all their soul. And so Moses appeals even for obedience. And uh, he does this. You can even see this in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 27. That's in the covenant witnesses section here. But he does this and he appeals to them and says, For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more... After my death. There's another instance where you see Moses is what? Prophesying about what's going to happen after he dies. And he appeals to them. These are appeals that you just don't see in these other ancient Near Eastern treaties. I think that those kings uh, who conquered these nations, they would not be so interested in trying to get to the heart. They just want the external obedience so that it's convenient for the king. But this is something that Moses actually cares about. There are some structural features to this book too. Um, they're it's kind of broken up into five different speeches. And the thrust of Deuteronomy is really kind of like this explanation followed by exhortation. Okay? I'm going to explain something and then I'm going to exhort you to follow and do the things that you're supposed to do. And by the way, that's kind of the similar pattern that a lot of the New Testament books follow, isn't it? Right? Ephesians 1 through 3. Here's the explanation of something, and now I'm going to exhort you 4 through 6 on how to do it. Uh, Galatians kind of does that same thing too, as well. Uh, and actually, more than any other book, the book of Hebrews does this. Because there are different like warning sections. When we get there, you'll see this. You may already understand this from the book of Hebrews. But there are these warning sections where he takes these detours. And you can actually even feel it in the text where he's describing something. He's like describing the Levitical system and, and walking through um, some of Israel's history and all of the setup of the tabernacle. And then he just breaks into this like exhortation that he begins to say, now you need to draw near with a sincere heart and a full faith to, to God. Arguably, you could say the writer of Hebrews is really doing very similarly what Deuteronomy does, which is to f- explain these core truths and then exhort the people to follow them. Which, by the way, Hebrews is a sermon. It's not just a written book. Okay? It's a sermon as well. And that helps to lend credence to that. So you can argue, where did Paul or where did the New Testament writers ever get this idea to explain and then exhort? They got it from Deuteronomy. That's where they got it from. Okay, So they can see that as their template. Okay, now, this is... uh, It just gets better and better as we get through this lecture because this is a lot of fun stuff here. Okay, so, the law of Deuteronomy, I want to talk about this a little bit. I want to give you some principles to follow here. There is this view called the tripartite view of the law. And it is just simply an improper... I just don't know how else to say it. It's just not well defended. It's not a good way to divide up the law. And it's a very, very, very common view. And if you hold that view, it's no problem. It's okay. But uh, it's just not well established. Basically, uh, it's been divided into three different segments. Ceremonial civic and moral laws. Okay? Ceremonial, civic, and moral laws. And the reason why it's divided that way is because, well, I mean, at the end of the day, um, it's convenient because you're trying to understand what applies to me. What applies to me? The problem with this is that you have laws that actually contain all three segments all in the same law. So how do you divide that out? So you're like, well, 
can't apply the civic part because that's to Israel and the ceremonial that belongs to the priests of Israel and that kind of thing. But the moral parts will somehow draw that out. And it really just kind of puts the reader in the driver's seat and he can just kind of determine what he ultimately wants to apply in Deuteronomy and what he doesn't. If it feels like it should apply because it's moral, then yeah, let's apply it. But that's not a very safe and very objective way to understand how to uh, divide out the law in Deuteronomy. Okay, so just want to talk uh, to mention that there, because what what it really comes down to is you have the old covenant and you have the new covenant, and we are under the new covenant. We are not under the old covenant, and so ah, it's it's getting into a whole thing. I don't have time to get into, but basically. You don't technically have to follow anything in Deuteronomy because you're not under the Old Covenant. You say, well, wait a minute. I need to follow like the love of the Lord. My-. Yes, exactly. But that's because that's under the New Covenant, not because it's under the Old Covenant. Okay, So that gets more into what I have time to get into. But the other principle that you need to come away with here is that the law was designed to teach. The law was designed to teach. Okay? It's not just a bunch of rules. It's teaching you about something about God. It's teaching you what is really most important, what God really cares about. The law was also made for man. And then the reverse of it, what Jesus says, man was not made for the law. In other words, he uses the Sabbath as an example, right? But the law was made for man, meaning that the law is to serve man and to help man. It's not to... It's not so that man serves the law as though the law is an end to itself. It's not an end to itself. The law serves man and helps man and teaches man how to do what is right before the Lord. Okay? That's important. And here's an important point as well. Laws become irrelevant or meaningless when they prevent you from maximizing your potential to fulfill its ultimate intent. Okay? That can happen where the law eventually becomes a hindrance for you to actually fulfill its true intent. And at that point, the law itself, the rule itself, should not really be followed because it's now preventing you from actually following the, the original intent of that law to begin with. And Jesus, that, Jesus does a great example of that with the Sabbath, with his disciples. I think it's hilarious because sometimes it's like we'll say, well, Jesus broke the Sabbath because he's God and he's Lord of the Sabbath, so he can do whatever he wants, and so it's just kind of a proclamation of deity. But that's not really what he's saying because he doesn't use examples of like, well, I'm God, so I can do whatever I want. He uses examples of people that actually broke the law in the Old Testament. He talks about David, who broke the law. He talks about the priests, who broke the law. Why does he say that? Because laws cannot comprehensively always, for every situation, cover all of those situations such that it helps you to fulfill the true intent of the law. And so at some point, the law breaks down. And it's the whole point of that law was to teach you to get you to the heartbeat behind the law, that you would fulfill the heart behind it. And that's the whole point. Fulfilling the Sabbath is not just to be a rule in and of itself. It's teaching you something deeper. And if you advance to the point where you can fulfill that without even fulfilling the Sabbath in its rules and rituals, then you're actually doing what God has called you to do. Okay, So just wanted to get some clarity on that uh, when it comes to the law in Deuteronomy. But there's more here that we need to talk about. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have an order and a structure to them. And this is going to play a huge role in Deuteronomy. Commands 1, 2, 3, and 4 all relate to God. And you may know this. And if you've read this, you kind of see this off the bat. Like, ah, yeah, that's true. Those commands are more vertical. They relate between God and man. Commands 5... 6, 7, 8, and 9, and 10 all relate to man. So there's an order. There is a structure to this. But it's even more intelligent than that. Because commands 1 and 2 actually correspond with command number 5. And you can actually show this grammatically in the text. They actually do. They actually correspond with one another. And they correspond on the topic of authority. 
you got human authority for command number five. You shall honor your father and your mother. And you have God's authority. You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. Commands three and then six, seven, eight, and nine also are related to each other. And they relate in the aspect of respect or taking someone seriously. Not taking the Lord's name in vain is taking God seriously. And then you see these staccato commands, right? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Those are the staccato commands. It mirrors the staccato command over here, the only staccato command on this side that says you shall not take the Lord's um, name in vain. Okay? It deals with the area of, of, of seriousness and respect. You take God seriously, you take people seriously. And then command number four and command number ten, you shall keep the Sabbath and you shall not covet, deal with the issue of stewardship. Or you could say ownership. It deals with ownership. God owns the world. He owns everything in it. So the Sabbath is a reflection of the fact that God owns everything. He even owns you. And He owns your time. And He owns your resources. So you need to take a section of your time and recognize the fact that He owns it. And that you are to be a good steward of these things. And the same is true with people. You are to be a good steward of what people have, knowing that it's not yours, and that you respect the fact that it is theirs, and that you're a good steward of what you have, and you're not to covet what someone else has. Now, here's what's incredible. This is really mind-blowing to me, and that is that every single command, chronologically, in order, actually corresponds to these really complicated sections in Deuteronomy from chapter 12 through chapter 26. And literally, from chapter 12, starting in chapter 12, is this whole section on the Ten Commandments being explained in further detail, in order. And it goes basically like this. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 31, is corresponding to command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And the whole point that's being taught here, and again, this is not just something that we're kind of thematically showing. It's actually something you can actually grammatically show. And I actually went through and, and studied this in detail. And if we had time, we could walk through that and show that. But the idea behind this command then, when you kind of pull it out and you recognize what the commands are that are associating with this command, is don't raise other gods to the level of Yahweh. Serve Him in one place. That's key in Deuteronomy 12. You're going to go to one place. You're going to go to one place. I have my name dwelling in one place. Because He is one God. That's the whole point. He is one God. So you shall have no other gods rise to the level of Yahweh. He is the only God. Then there's command number two. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Uh, And I've got the corresponding verses here in Deuteronomy that actually give the actual command. But it corresponds to this section. Don't lower Yahweh to the level of other gods. So if you're not going to raise other gods, number one was don't raise other gods to Yahweh's level. Don't lower Yahweh to the level of other gods. Don't make him into an image. Don't make him into a golden calf. Okay? Command number two. Command number three. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. It corresponds to chapter 14. How you dress and how you eat. Ha! How you dress and how you eat for the watching nations actually reflects how seriously you take God's name. That's what that is. Okay? Sorry, I have to kind of blast through these because we're running out of time. Command number four. You shall keep the Sabbath. God owns your time and your resources. Be ready to give them up and be generous. It's actually sections in there that talks about that. Being generous. Why? Because God owns your time. God owns your resources. That's why keeping the Sabbath is so important. Command number five, you shall honor your father and your mother. Honor your parents along with all other God-ordained authorities. That whole section is all about different authorities. All different authorities. Kings and prophets and all kinds of things. You shall honor your parents, which is a reflection of the fact that you shall honor all human authorities. Command number six, you shall not murder. Take murder seriously. And here's the punchline, value life. That's what do not, do not murder is really all about. Value life. You need to value life. And that whole section is about valuing life. Command number seven, you shall not commit adultery. The idea of committing adultery is mixing things that don't go together. 
It's mixing things that don't go together. Two married people that are married to other people coming together is mixing things that don't go together. It's also based upon greed. Greed is ultimately at the heart of adultery. Unadulterated purity in everything is what this section is all about. Then command number eight, you shall not steal. Assuming rights and presuming ownership is stealing. If you assume, I have a right to that, I own that, that means you have a heart of a thief. Okay. Command number nine relates to chapter 24, verse 16, to chapter 25, verse 4. You shall not bear false witness. At the heart of bearing false witness is justice. It's actually, really I should say, injustice. You need to uphold justice and pursue the good and the right for every case and every person. And then command number 10, you shall not covet. You need to embrace what is rightfully yours and protect your neighbor's right to his possessions. And here's what's interesting. No cheap shots. No, no cheap shots. And I'll, we'll explain that here in a second. Um, because that's what will happen, is that if you don't embrace what is rightfully yours, if you... If you don't protect what your neighbor has and make sure that he keeps what is his, you will find yourself doing sly, cheap shots to get what you want. And uh, we'll see that here in a moment. Now, we can say that all day, but the proof is really in the pudding. And I wanted to have a little bit of time here to talk about a couple of strange laws. I found ten of them that are really hard. Okay, I found ten laws that are really hard in this whole section. I want to show you how they relate to the Ten Commandments. The animal diet, right? The animal diet. Now this one might be a little bit clearer for you in chapter 14. It relates to, it's in the section of command number three. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. The idea here is that you need to take God seriously even in your diet. And you need to respect Him even in how you do mundane things like eating. That's taking God seriously, even in the mundane things of your life. How about the Asherah tree? You shall not plant an Asherah tree, uh, put up Asherah pole. It's probably what it is, more of a pole, uh, next to the altar of Yahweh. You're like, what is that? What does that have to do with anything? It's in the section of command number five, which is honor your father and mother, which is all about authority. And this is a statement of authority, because when you put an Asherah tree in the ground, especially next to an altar, you're basically saying, this God, this Asherah God, this goddess, rules here. That's a statement of authority. The whole point is that don't do that, because that's the wrong authority. That's the wrong authority. Spiritists, witchcraft, are described in chapter 18. It's, again, in command number 5. It's all about authority. Don't go to the wrong authorities. (laughs) Don't go to the spiritists and the witchcraft, which are poor authorities. They are wrong authorities on the afterlife. Not cutting down fruit trees in war. This is a great one. Like, what? This is so weird. You go and siege a city and you have these trees and it's like, if the tree's bearing fruit, don't cut it down. But if it's not bearing fruit, you can cut it down. It's okay. So you can use it for building, you know, ramps and things like that. Why? Because the point is, is to teach Israel that the trees that are, that, that, sorry, the trees that are bearing fruit, the trees that are bearing fruit are actually giving forth life, and you can make use of their fruit. Their life is giving you life, and you need to value life. It falls under command six: you shall not murder. Value life. There's one where if you find uh, if a soldier in war finds a woman and he wants to marry her, he can do so, but he must shave her head and cut her nails. Weird. Why do you have to do that? That's interesting. But it falls under command six, which is you shall not murder. And the idea here is one, she is called to mourn for her parents after she's taken by this man. Because probably because they died in, in the, the war. She needs to, or, or they're left behind. So she mourns for her parents, which is her way of valuing life. Yes? Also, if he decides, I don't really want to marry her, then he's supposed to send her away and not sell her as a slave, uh, which he normally would have been done in those days, because it says you are to value her life. You are to value her life. And then on top of that, she's supposed to cut her nails in her hair, probably to reflect the fact that she's starting over with a new life. That's the whole point. It's starting afresh, a new life. And it's to signify that. Okay? Uh, five more here really quick. 
Uh, there's one where you take the chicks and you don't take the mother bird. You find a mother bird and a nest and you take the, uh, the chicks or the eggs. Uh, and it's like, okay, take the chicks, but you can't take the mother bird. What's the whole point of that? This falls under command seven, don't commit adultery. And it's like, how does that even fit? That doesn't even make any sense. But if you understand what committing adultery is all about, it's not about, it, it's about not mixing anything and it's about not being greedy. That's very important. So it's almost like that adage, uh, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, so to speak. You don't take both because that's greed. If you've got the eggs, take the eggs and let the mother go free. Again, that's valuing life. But in another sense, that's also showing that you're not being greedy and you're not mixing two different things together. Okay, So it's, it's a teaching tool, right? Obviously, we can do today, you know, we can actually if we really wanted to, hunt the mother bird and the chick. Some of you would be like, I would never do that. But in any case, there's another one where you have building a railing around your roof so that no one falls off. This falls under command number seven as well. And the idea here is that bloodshed or blood guiltiness, because someone fell off your roof because you didn't put a guardrail around there, blood guiltiness should not fall on your house. That doesn't make sense. In other words, no one should die at home. No one should have to die at home. And in that sense, it's not good. Those two things don't go together, bloodshed and your house. That's important. Um, Clothing of two different kinds, again, falls under command number seven. That's a very classic example of not mixing things. Don't mix fabrics of two different kinds. Uh, Do not commit adultery. Don't mix. Don't muzzle an ox, command number nine which has to do with not testifying falsely to your neighbor. The idea is justice here. Justice. The fact that an ox, when he's threshing, he should be allowed to eat because he's giving you good labor. So let him eat along the way. That's important. That's justice. And then finally, blot out Amalek. The Amalekites, when Israel left Egypt and they were heading to Mount Sinai, they were picking off is the, the stragglers at the back of the line of Israel, which were the weak and the helpless and the disabled, and they were actually, they were, they were basically committing these cheap shots. They were committing cheap shots against Israel. And the whole point there is that Amalek did not value Israel's right as a nation, and they made these cheap shots against them. They coveted what wasn't theirs, and that falls in line with you shall not covet. Okay. Now, um, I have two minutes. I'm going to just really quickly run through this. There are seven reasons for the law. One, what, what are the reasons? Why did God give us the law not just Deuteronomy, but the law in general. One is to reveal what God cares about. We've already talked about that. Torah. Torah means teaching. Torah means teaching. It's teaching you what God cares about. Number two, it spots, spotlights Him to the nations. It spotlights Him to the nations. And all these passages show this, that the law is actually doing this for Israel and for the nations. Okay, It's spotlighting Himself to the nations. That's what the law does. Number three... And this one can be easily misunderstood, but it actually is somewhat of a legitimate offer of reconciliation between God and man. The law is offering potentially a reconciliation between God and man. What we understand, though, and we know, is that that's not possible, but that doesn't mean that the offer isn't legitimate. Just because no one can reach it doesn't mean it's not a legitimate offer, right? And we see that. You shall be, if you keep my commandments, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what's going to happen. But, obviously, they weren't able to do it. Also, number four is to expose sin. Romans picks up on this in Romans 3, and Galatians 3 as well picks up on this. The law exposes sin. It also aggravates sin. It actually makes it even more pronounced. So the law actually brings out with more clarity, the sin that is in the heart. Because it actually shows you, this is what you shouldn't do. And then it makes the heart want to do that even more. So it actually has a uh, purpose in doing that to show forth even sin greater. And then, finally... Oh, no, not finally. There's two more. Uh, It leads us to the Christ of the new covenant. It leads us to the Christ of the new covenant. So the old covenant, the law, which is the old covenant is actually pointing us to Christ and the new covenant, and then ultimately is to be fulfilled by the Son of Man himself. Okay, So those are the seven reasons I would say the law was given. The law serves multiple purposes, you can see. It's not just a very simple answer. The law was given because of this. 
Now, there's multiple reasons why God uses the law, and ultimately it points us to the New Covenant law, which we will see later on when we get to the New Testament here in BTI. But, all right, that was a lot to cover. And uh, we will stop here for today, and we'll pray, and then we'll head off toward the worship service this morning. Father, thank you so much for your grace to us, and we thank you so much that the law of Deuteronomy helps us to understand your law. And it helps us to understand what you really care about. The fact that you care about righteousness and justice. Just like Micah understood that there is to be this justice and righteousness and loving kindness that you care about and you want your people to emulate. We need to be careful that we don't fall into the pharisaical trap, even the Orthodox Judaism today, that the law is an end to itself, more or less. Uh, that ultimately we have to follow these laws and we need to remember that it's it goes beyond that it's teaching us the heartbeat of god and that's why the law does not necessarily all aspects of the law does not do not apply to us today because ultimately we are under a new covenant and under that new covenant we are fulfilling the fullest and best intents of the old covenant law that were given to us. And so in that way, we are even doing better than what the old covenant law could have ever had us do. And we thank you that you have given us your spirit to be able to do that. Help us to do that even more faithfully and more diligently in our lives. And we pray that our worship to you today is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you everyone. Really appreciate it. And looking forward to seeing you in the service.